Well, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here right now. Part, what are we in? Three? Part three of the series called Jesus Is. I had a moment there. And uh, I, you know what? This, I, I'm so ahead of the game right now that I'm thinking about part four and part five, and I'm into our next series. And so my, my brain is in a lot of places. But this message is going to be really, really powerful for any of you out here who are maybe seeking faith in God, not sure about faith in God. If you're out there and you struggle, if you go through those doubts, say, doubt phases where you're like, is it really? Are you sure? I don't know. You know, maybe you're here because your spouse is here. Maybe you're here because your parents make you come and you're, you're wondering and you're curious. For some of you out here, you say, Todd, man, my faith is strong as a rock and, and I got no problem with that. I'm just going to further solidify some things, hopefully, in your heart. Because what I want to talk today is, is I want to talk about something that Jesus did that was unlike what any other religious figure ever did. Or at least any, let me say it like this, any credible religious figure in history ever did. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to John chapter 14 with me. And I want to read some famous, famous words that Jesus made. And, and then we're going to talk about those over the next few minutes here. John chapter 14, verse number one says this, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is somewhat near the end. And he goes, Hey, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Remember this, that the point of the gospel is to get you and God back together. Does that make sense? The point of the gospel is, is not necessarily to see if you can keep enough rules to be good enough for God to like you. Okay, it's for you. This is Jesus's main goal to become a bridge to be the, the difference maker between your sin and God's holiness. And he could bridge the gap so that you could have a relationship with God now and in the life to come. So he goes, so I want to make sure that in your eternal future, that wherever I am, I want you to be with me. So let's keep reading. The Bible says, and where I go, the, and, and, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know. But Thomas said, everybody say Thomas. That'll be kind of key in a little while. But Thomas, of all the disciples, Thomas speaks up and he goes, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And then Jesus uttered, these are kind of the famous words that most of us know or have heard at some point in time. Jesus said these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are some bold words right there. That is unlike what any other credible religious leader has ever really done before. He steps out. He really, what he does is, if he's not legit, he has totally made a huge error. He has totally painted himself into a corner. He has boxed himself in. He is in major trouble. Because what he has just done is made an exclusive truth claim. Number one, he has basically said, I'm the one which he's already said, and we talked about that in week one, that he said he was indeed the Messiah, that he was the one sent by God and sent from God. But see, other people have kind of said stuff kind of like that before. And Jesus in this moment and a few others we could point to as well, really, really makes it exclusive. He goes, there's not just a way. Like some religious leaders teach that there's, there's a way, that if you keep enough 
uh, of rules and make enough steps and pray enough prayers. If you've ever read the creed of the, 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 the Buddhist religion, there's, man, there's all these things you've got to do. And if you do, if you do any of these things, what you're going to do is, is you're going to find the path and you're going to find the way. And if you find the way, you might make it to enlightenment. And so this is, this is a path. And so Buddha almost kind of is like, I'll teach you the way. And then you got guys like, let's say out, out of Islam, you have this guy named Muhammad who goes, well, I'm not God. I'm just a prophet. And, and I'm going to tell you what the way is. And if you do all these things, then, then you'll have the way. And then Jesus shows up and says, like, no, it's not a it's not a path that you take. It's a it's a person and it's me. And and if we'll go back to that last verse that we read there, not only is he saying that there's not a way in sense of like if you do enough good things and keep enough creeds and do enough right things or whatever it is. He goes not only that, like there's no other way, meaning like not only am I the path, I am the way like all other ways don't work. Ooh, now we've drawn a line in the sand because if you went to college and you had the, you know, the religious class or the, philo- the, philo- the philosophy major that, that was debating all the different religions and all the different thoughts, the way you, Jesus has just made a bold claim here. He basically said, I'm right. And everybody else is wrong. And you're like, oh, and here's what you need to know about that, too. Like whenever you get into debates with people, just know this, that every major religion makes the same exact exclusive claim that their way is the right way and the other way is the wrong way. Sometimes Christianity gets pegged as being um, kind of like uh, we kick everybody else to the curb and we think we're exclusive every major religion teaches the same exclusivity only christianity somehow gets beat up in the realm of debate for it everybody does it but jesus does it even more uniquely because he says it's not just that i'm exclusive he goes i'm actually it that it's not even a path it's just me not even like there's not a way it's i am the way it's me that's why the early christians before they got tagged with the term christian which was originally meant to be kind of a derogatory term they were called people of the way when you go read the first chapters of the book of acts they were like yeah the people of the way the people of the way they weren't called christians until later after the fact and it was meant to be kind of a put down and so they're people of the way because they believe jesus was the one and only way and he does something like i said that nobody else does he actually claimed to be god and by doing this what you do is is you end up making Jesus, have you ever heard this right here? Have you ever had the conversation where people said something like, yeah, yeah, I I believe in Jesus. I just believe he was a good person, like a good moral teacher. He was just a good religious teacher. How many of you ever yeah, and it sounds nice. It sounds easy. It's way better than like a, a, an arrogant atheistic just kicking dirt in your face telling you you're an idiot. It's at least nicer than that, right? And so what they've done is, is they've reduced Jesus down to like just a good guy. You know, he wears Birkenstocks, he's got long hair, he feeds people when he prays for children. How, who, who, who doesn't like that guy? You know, invite that guy to Christmas. And so, how would you have, anyway. So my point is, is that what Jesus does here, is, is he so paints himself in a corner. And this is what I mean by that. At this point, Jesus can no longer be a good person. It is impossible, logically, for Jesus to be a good person. Because here's the deal. If you got up and claimed to be God, but yet you knew that you weren't God, then what does that make you? A liar. Right. Yeah, we don't typically think of liars as good moral people, do we? You don't, at least the people that make your food when you're not looking and take care of your taxes. And you want them to be honest, truthful, good people. And so anyway, my point is, is that Jesus could no longer be a good person at this point in time because if he's not who he said he was and he knew he wasn't God, then he was basically like the greatest con artist in all of history. 
But con artists are typically liars and thieves and are trying to take advantage of people, and yet you find the opposite of Jesus' life, that he's giving, 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 sacrificing, helping other people. So his con was really backwards, if indeed he was not God, and he knew he wasn't God. He definitely wasn't a good person because he convinced all these people that he was the son of God, even though it was a total hoax and a total lie. So he's not really a good person. He's not even a good con artist because con artists usually get away with their deal. Jesus died for his. Okay, so here's the alternative then. If Jesus was not who he said he was, maybe he wasn't a liar. Maybe he actually believed he was the son of God. Well, here's the problem with that thought. If somebody walked in here today and got up and told you that they were the son of God, what would you think of them? You would, you would, you'd find padded walls and a straitjacket. Like, put this guy away. He's going to hurt somebody. So, so what you find is that people that get up and delusionally think that they're God when they're really not, we find them to be strange people and we don't let them, our kids hang out with them, right? And so, so these, these are loony people, crazy people, weirdo people that, that should be institutionalized probably if they think that they're God, but they're really not. And, and here's the problem. There's nothing about the life of Jesus that would align himself with a lunatic type person, a crazy type person. He taught some of the most sound doctrine of how to live life. I mean, I, there are psychologists who will look at the life and teaching of Jesus and say that's the most sound way that you could possibly live life that would help you attain mental health. So like this guy was clearly not off of his rocker based on everything that he was teaching nor how he treated other people in every way other than this fact he was he was a very mentally sound person but in this moment so jesus what he's done is i want you to see this i want you to see the audacity of this claim is he has basically said i'm god and you need to deal with that now because either i am who i said i am or i'm a con artist or i am who i said i am or i'm a lunatic and need to be put away somewhere I just, that's the struggle that you and I all have to deal with. Because as soon as you say, well, I believe Jesus is a good person, logically your whole statement has just fallen apart. There is no way for Jesus to be a good person if he is not indeed who he said that he was. Are you following me so far here? This is what Jesus did. I didn't create this dilemma. Jesus did. Jesus could have made it like way easier on himself, but he didn't. He made it so hard. He wanted to make it a challenge like that. You either have to embrace this or you have to completely reject it. But there is no middle ground. So everybody say so. So in light of that, I'm going to tell you why I decided that I wanted to believe that Jesus was actually who he said he was. Now, here's what you need to know. There is no way for me to 100 percent without a doubt prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is. Does that make sense? But don't get it twisted when you get into the realm of, of debate and argument with other people who don't believe in Jesus because they in no way can disprove that Jesus was who he says he was. Just like no scientist in the world can disprove the existence of God. It is impossible to disprove God. It's impossible. So never buy into those theories. Never buy into that. But the question then becomes this. If I can't 100% without doubt disprove and 100% without doubt prove that, that Jesus is who he says he was, what do you go on? Well, we go on faith to a large degree, but here's the deal. I went on faith just because I wanted to reach out and, and, and attach my life to something greater than who I am. But after walking with Jesus, I began to struggle with my faith. And I began to have these moments of doubt where I'm like, really? Or was I just worked up? Really? Or was I just super emo? Really? Or did I just, did I smoke too much of whatever as a child? Did I, did, wh- why would is this legitimate is this real because some of you have the same history that i have and you're like how many 
brain cells did I lose? Maybe that was just a thing. And so the question then became for me is, is do I know for certain, do I have a, an assurance that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was? And so I started talking to a guy one time, and he began to explain to me uh, something that in the Christian realm is called apologetics. I mean, it's just the defense of the gospel. And what he showed me was something that was so amazing and mind-blowing and irrefutable. What I did was, is after talking to him, I walked away and I, I thought this consciously and literally. I thought, Todd, you can be crazy, rebel, and go do whatever you want to and totally reject God if you want to. You could do that. But you cannot at this point not say that God is not real. There's too much evidence. So if you're out there and you say, man, I don't know, and I struggle, and I don't believe, and somebody tricked you into being here today, or maybe you just have those moments of doubt like I did, I want to help you solidify your faith this morning. I'm just going to, there's so much I can say. I'm going I'm to land on four simple points and four simple ideas this morning that I think is going to help solidify your faith in God. And if you're the believer that out there, that's out there that says, my faith is unshakable, I'm just going to make it more unshakable, okay? If you're out there and you struggle, I'm going to help you. And if you're out there and you have total doubt, if nothing more by the end of the day, all I want you to say is, okay. I'll think about it. If that's the best I can get, I'm, I'm down with that. Here are four things, and there's many more, but just four simple things that I want to point to that I think give Jesus' claims some legitimacy that you actually have to begin to consider after you hear this. Are you ready? Number one is this. The first thing that I think you have to consider when you think about Jesus and his claims, his radical box him in claims that he's the, actually the son of God, that he is the way, that all other ways are off. This is the first thing I want to talk about is Jesus's lineage. Now, I don't know about you, but like, have, have you ever been onto like the, the, the tree.com thing, ancestry.com, and you go and you look at your ancestry and you look at, has anybody done that? You're just like me. Nobody wants to go do it. Okay. A couple of you did. A couple of you did. So if you go to Ancestry.com, you're going to be able to go find out who your grandpappy was and your great-grandpappy and your grandmammy and your great-grands. And you find cool things that like, oh, this is, you know, and so you don't find out like your, your great-grandmother was a serial killer or anything crazy. You just, everything's good in your family tree and it's not nothing weird. And, and you find out more about where you came from. Well, here's what you need to know. America is, is largely a, a convergence of all kinds of different people groups, right? When America was being formed, we had all kinds of immigrants flood America. And so, like, when you look at my ancestry, I mean, my grandmother was part Irish. My grandfather was part German. On my other side, my other grandmother's part Cherokee Indian. I'm a giant mutt of, of whatever. I didn't know what I am. So people say, what's your... I have no idea. Ancestry.com couldn't nail that down. And so... We come from all over the map and all over the place, but, everybody say but, but here's the deal. The world was much smaller during the time of Jesus, and travel was less expansive, and you didn't move around nearly as much. It was very likely that you would be born in the same town, learn your father's trade, and then die in that same town, and never really leave or travel or go do much. The other thing you need to know about their time period was this, is that the Jewish people, by their own commands, were told not to intermarry with other, uh, other nations and other people groups. They, they wanted to keep the Jewish people marrying other people because they had like faith in God. And so this was something that was very important to them. And so they kept pretty good records of their lineage. And you could always trace back who was connected to who. This is why in the Old Testament you get into these chapters that you skip over immediately when you do your Bible in a year plan. Because so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so. It's called the begots. You know what I'm talking about. And we don't care. We don't know who you are. You just got weird names and we're skipping you until Moses parts the Red Sea. So. 
But there's a reason why that stuff is actually important. Because when you throw all these lineages together, you start finding where Jesus comes from. And here's what's so radical. The only way that you could get up and make the claim to be the Messiah is if you even had a specific lineage. If you got up and were to say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, the way Jesus did, the very first thing that they would do is go look at who your mama is and who your daddy is. And if you're not even from the right family, they might throw rocks at you at that moment right then and there and not like a couple pebbles we're talking about throw them till you don't get up okay so because that would make you a heretic and and anyway false prophet all these all these bad things and they didn't like you back then so the point is is that jesus had this unique lineage and here's what i want to show you that 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 makes statistically being the messiah uh, it's a stretch to pull off this is not easy to pull off here here's the first thing that you need to know there were these prophecies given throughout all the old testament that said the messiah would come through certain bloodlines so first it says that Abraham, through your seed, I'm going to send the one, right? So all of a sudden you got this world population, we shrink it down, you got to be from Abraham. And Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, right? So then he has two kids. One's named Ishmael, the other one's named Isaac. And God said it'll come through Isaac. So now all of a sudden you got 50% of his population is cut off. Are you tracking with me? I'm going to move quick here, turn your brain on and just keep it dialed in as best you can. So from Isaac, Isaac has two kids, one named Jacob, one named Esau. God says, I got that one. Like God's calling it like, yeah, we're going to go there. And so, so sure enough, Jacob comes out. Jacob then has 12 kids. So all of a sudden you've gone from 50% of Abraham to 50% of Isaac to 50% of Jacob. But once you get to Jacob, he's got 12 kids. God divides it by 12 and said, I'll take that one. I want Judah. The the Messiah will come through Judah. That means one-twelfth of the entire Jewish population had no shot. You couldn't. This wasn't like pageantry and stage moms. Like, come on, you can do it. Get out there. You know, forcing your kid to try to go be the one. You know, I don't think they did that. But you couldn't even try that. One-twelfth of the population was cut down. Then hundreds of years come by, and then a guy named Jesse comes along. Jesse has eight sons. So God says, Jesse, through your line. It says, through the branch of Jesse is how the prophecy is made. Through the branch of Jesse will come the Messiah. And Jesse had eight kids. So now we're hundreds of years down the line of, of Jesse. Uh, where he comes along, and then out of his eight kids, he goes, I got David, which later becomes the king of Israel. So out of, the, out of Jesse, you got eight, and then out of eight of his kids, you split that by one-eighth, and you got one kid, and you got a kid named David. And then all of a, So here's the deal. As soon as Jesus gets up and says anything about being the Messiah, they're like, all right, go grab the birth records. So my point would be that Jesus had the credentials, at least from his bloodline, to make that claim. And that was a very, very, very small select group of people that could even have attempted this claim. We're just getting started. Okay, so not only is there Jesus' lineage, now what we're going to deal with is this, is his fulfillment of prophecy. So the idea that Jesus would just come through a bloodline was just one tiny percentage of all the predictions that were made about messiah now here's what you need to know there were 270 different prophecies in the old testament about the messiah like that's a lot 270 prophecies that you had to pull off fulfill show up do and whatever now i know what you're thinking there are certain prophecies that jesus had the bible he could have gone and read it just read it and then said i'm gonna go do it right so one of the prophecies is that the messiah would come and he would teach in parables well that's easy to pull off I could get up here teaching parables and say, look at me. I have fulfilled the prophecies. And then you still throw me in a loony bin. But my point is, is that there were certain ones that you could not go back 
and fulfill. Like there's certain prophecies that are completely outside of your control. Let me, let me ask you a question. How many of you got to control when you were born? The book of Daniel prophesies when the Messiah would come. How many of you got to choose where you were born? Yep. The, the, book, of, the book of Micah predicts the city that the Messiah would be born in. And so there's, how many of you got to choose the manner, unless you take your own life, how many you get to choose the manner of your own death? No, you don't get to choose that. How do you get to choose the response of the people after your death? You don't get to choose those things. And there's eight unique prophecies that are completely unmanipulatable. I don't know if that's a word. Unmanipulatable? We're going to go with that. So out of these eight prophecies, what a mathematician did, because they worked and probability and factors, they began to put together like, okay, let's see what would the probability be if somebody could actually pull off all this stuff? Because that's a pretty great feat. You've got the lineage, you've got all these prophecies, you've got the eight specifically that you can't manipulate and you can't control. I mean, how hard is this like? Because you know what? Maybe they just got lucky, right? Jesus just got lucky. Here's the probability of that happening. They came up with a number, and it's a number that you and I don't use. It's called 10 decillion to 1. Yeah, I told you, you don't even know what that is, do you? Okay, uh, 10 decillion to 1 is basically a 10 followed by 157 zeros. 10 decillion. I, I don't even know how to fathom that. The guy came up with another formula to help you understand this. As a matter of fact, you can go read James, uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence that Demands a Verdict, and you can read the whole thing if you want. But I'll give you the summary of it. He comes up with a formula in which you can kind of visualize how 10 decillion to 1 is kind of hard to pull off. So 10 decillion to 1, remember, it's a 10 with 157 zeros followed behind it. This is the equivalent. You could go to Texas, and it would take you 100, or it would take you 10 decillion 50 cent pieces to fill up the entire state of Texas about a half foot deep. Picture that. Has everybody got it? There's silence. State of Texas, how many have you been to Texas? Everything's bigger than Texas. Anyway. Everything's bigger in Texas. They're in Texas. And we got 10 decillion coins. It fills up the entire state from border to border to border, all the way to Mexico, to the panhandle, the, everything, the Gulf, West Texas, everything. Half foot deep. Now, here, here's the probability of you trying to do what Jesus did. This is the probability that Jesus is not who he said he was. It would be as if I were to go to Texas and to take one of those coins and put a black X on it. And I get to go anywhere I want. And nobody knows. And I flip it over and I shuffle it back in somehow. And then I just take one of you wonderful people. And if I were to take one of you wonderful people to Texas, maybe I blindfold you, spin around, but then I get to push you out into Texas. You get to go out into Texas and you go anywhere you want. The odds of you finding the one X that I marked on is the same probability that Jesus was not who he said he was. Your ability to pull that off is so mathematically astounding, you should at least think about it. Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy is a legitimate deal that you need to consider. And you need to, if you are already a believer and you have moments of doubt and faith, here's the level of doubt that you can now attain. Ten decillion to one. So if you go to Vegas and they ever give you those odds, bet. Got it? 
Let's keep going. Not, not only this, not only Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy, but I would say that Jesus' resurrection is a legitimate proof and, and thing that you need to consider and think about. Because at the scholarly level, now here's what you need to do and you need to be careful of. Don't go Google searching stuff like this because the internet is without uh, uh, basically filters. The, the internet is without people who can actually show, no, you're dumb or you're wrong or actually you just made up a lie or you have no idea what you're talking about. And so this is why to really think about this stuff, you've got to go to the scholarly level because at the scholarly level, they always challenge each other. That's what makes it scholarly. They dig down to the deepest component that they possibly can, and then they challenge one another. Even at the most scholarly level, you need to know that what people that are totally not believing in God still can't buy into the Jesus thing. Here's what at the scholarly level, even skeptics know, that Jesus was indeed a historical figure. There's no Nobody's, listen, if you get on the internet and people start talking about Jesus was this, because there's weird internet YouTube videos out there, don't watch that garbage unless you really kind of well studied and know what you're talking about, because it, it sounds fascinating. It sounds, listen to me, one of the ones that I saw, my, my, it was my brother who sent me a video, he said, dude, have you ever seen this? Check this out. And I watched it, I'm like, holy smokes. And I went and looked at uh, um, a, a, a Christian scholar, and, and I wanted to know what his response to this was. And his response was literally this. He said, at our level of debate, we don't even consider such nonsense, so we don't even address it. So know that some of the stuff you dabble with, how do I be nice? I can't. That's totally incorrect politically. Uh, it's dumb. Okay, I'm just be, be nice. It's dumb. So, so be careful. But at the scholarly level, here's what they all agree, that Jesus was indeed a historical figure. That Jesus indeed had a, a, a life in that area of the world. Other outside sources outside of the Bible confirm that. We, we know for a fact that he was killed by a Roman crucifixion. We know that they buried him in a tomb that was not his own. And we know that three days later, his followers were claiming that he had risen from the dead. Those are historical facts that, that everybody now agrees upon. Because here's what you need to know, is that there is so much evidence out there now, and our ability to study that evidence is better than it ever has been. And here, here's what you'll find, is that the New Testament and, and the history of Jesus, there is more historical documentation, good quality, holds up to all the scrutiny of scholarship. There's better historical information out there by leaps and bounds than anything you've got on Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. But nobody doubts those guys. Way more information about him. So you need to know, like, there's, there's credible evidence for the major points that I pointed out. And when you get to these conclusions, you guys say, okay, well, we know he lived, we know he died, we know he crucified, we know he was buried, and then we know nobody found a body three days later. You get into all these theories about, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe they, maybe they put it in the wrong tomb. You know, here's what you need to know. The people at that time, the, the Jewish leadership, were so anti-Jesus, they would have done everything in their power to present a body, and they could not do it. Okay, so which leads me to these next thoughts. Fourth and final thought of the day. Not only was there Jesus' resurrection, but then you have to look at the disciples' reaction to the whole thing. Because here's, here's what you need to know. If Jesus was indeed who he says he was, they were definitely buying into it. But at the moment of his death and the moment of his crucifixion, out of the twelve, one of them betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. The other one denied him three times. Only one disciple showed up at the cross to witness the event, and everybody else was running for their lives because they knew they would be next if they kept this thing going. And so sure enough, they all run for their lives. Jesus is all alone in his final hour except for the apostle John. And so sure enough, three days later, all of a sudden, these guys are getting up with more boldness, more courage, more conviction 
to get up and say, hey, and here's what you need to know about the disciples. They did not get beaten and killed because of what they said they believed. They were beaten and killed because of what they said they saw. And they would not deny what they said they saw. Now, here's what you need to know about the disciples. The disciples themselves, too, if this is all a hoax or not true or fabricated or whatever, they did the dumbest thing you can ever do. Because they actually claimed that Jesus had a bodily resurrection. Now, that's tough to pull off, right? Like, that's hard. Like, your whole body, everything comes, but you got to... Because what they should have done, if this is all a hoax, what they should have done is they should have said, well, he, well, actually, he just, he spiritually rose from the dead. Because you can't refute that, can you? You can't argue with that, because now I'm just making up hoopla. <laughs> you, you can't refute that Jesus spiritually... I'm not saying, they're not saying that. They're saying he physically got up. We saw his body, we touched him, we hung out with him for days afterwards. It was crazy. And they would not back down from that lie to the point of this. And here's, here's what you need to know. This, was, this is the life of the apostles. Ready? Peter was crucified upside down for what he said he saw. Andrew crucified. Matthew was killed by sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip crucified. Simon crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Bartholomew crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. John actually is the only disciple that died of natural death, but they boiled him hot oil on three different occasions to torture him. Now, here's here's what I know about you. And here's what I know about me. Most of us would maybe not die for the truth. <laughs> like if we were being tortured, even if it was true, we'd be like, I don't care no more. I'm done. <laughs> but no, it was totally like most of us, many of us would not even die for the truth. None of us, unless you're a lunatic, none of us, but I love you anyway, none of us would die for something that we knew to be a lie. We're too smart for that. Like you start bringing on the heat, you start torturing, you start cutting off toes or burning. I'm done. I'm done. It was all fake. It was all a lie. I would be backing out so quick if it was a lie because nobody dies for a lie unless they're insane. Right. Many of us wouldn't die for the truth if it was painful enough. These men all died. Not for what they said they believed. They all died for what they said they saw with their own eyes. Now, to go from being in denial and running and fleeing from your life to standing up in front of the same councils that crucified Jesus, to go from that to that in a three-day period, what would convince you to change your mind? Nothing would convince me unless I saw a man rise from the dead. And I think that's what happened to them. So you say, Todd, this is all nice and this is all good. And this is, this is, uh, all I'm trying to do is present to you that Yes, I believe in Jesus, and I take him on faith, but not totally. I take it on fact. I take it on probability. I take it on the fact that there is enough evidence to support, that there's enough evidence to say, you know what, I know I believe and I have faith, and I'm glad because I think I kind of need that, but I think my faith is strongly supported by enough facts, enough thoughts, enough evidence, enough proofs that I feel pretty confident. About a 10 decillion to 1 if I'm going to Vegas. I'm feeling pretty good about this. I'm feeling like when I look at all the facts, and here's what I want you to know, is that if you're a believer out there, I want you to know that I think you can be really, really firm in your faith in Jesus. And if you're out there today and you say, man, I I don't know, and I don't believe, and I don't buy in, and this is all whatever, then here's at least all I want you to do. 
I would dare to say that there is enough evidence for you to at least think about giving God a chance. And at least walking in his direction until you determine that for yourself. A couple weeks ago I made this comment that weak faith in a strong object is better than strong faith in a weak object. Let me say that again. That weak faith in a strong object is better than strong faith in a weak object. And my point is this, is if you're going to put your faith in something, even if Jesus said this, Jesus said you don't need that much faith. But if you think I have to have this full, radical, 100% absolute, die to the end faith, you don't. You just got a little bit. And if you have a little bit, you'll start walking towards God. And then God, as you walk towards him, will reveal himself and you'll get solidified in that faith. But he said, you don't need that much. You just Faith is a mustard seed. You can move mountains. So do you need a lot of faith? Not according to Jesus. What you need a little bit of faith in is an incredibly strong object. And I think that the person of Jesus is the strongest object that you can put your faith in. Last point, and I'm going to close here. There's this thing um, uh, that, that a mathematician created back in the 1600s. His name was Pascal. He came up with this argument. He was a mathematician. He was, again, during the 1600s, he was so brilliant that at the age of 16, he was coming up with these mathematical breakthroughs. In his early 30s, he becomes a Christian. And decides to put his faith in Jesus. Well, what does a mathematician do when they think about God and, and Jesus? And he thinks like a math guy. You think in numbers. So he starts to put together what we now refer to as Pascal's wager, which was for him a scenario. It was like this kind of role-playing deal that he would do with people. And he'd say, let me ask you a question. If you have to bet your life on the existence, because everybody does in essence. You have to bet your life on the existence of God or disbelieving in the existence of God. But you do one or the other. He said that if you believe in God, it seems to make more logical and probable sense to do that. Because here's why. If I put my faith in God and God is real, then I have gained everything. If I put my faith in God and then God turns out not to be real, I've lost nothing. Because at the end of this life, what will there be? Nothing. You're just going to cease to exist. Now. He said that could be door number one. Door number two would be this. Let's say I choose to disbelieve in God. And let's say I disbelieve in God and I'm right. Then at the end of this life, what do I have still? Nothing. You still cease to exist. If I choose to disbelieve in God and in fact I was wrong and God turned out to be right, I could possibly lose everything. So he said if you had to bet. This is Pascal's wager. And listen, it's so funny. There's so many guys that uh, the atheistic community is so funny about this argument in particular. They're angry at it. <laughs> and the reason why they're angry at it is because the log- it's a logic that a child could figure out. If I go down this way and I could gain everything or lose nothing, or if I go down this way, I could lose nothing or lose everything. What is the most obvious choice? Go down this. And they come up with all these straw man arguments. They come up with all these. They, they, they die the death of a thousand qualifications to try to argue. Out. It, it's, you can't. It's too simple. I could teach it to my 10 year old. It would make total sense. And my point in saying this is not to prove the existence of God. Pascal's wager does not prove the existence of God. It just says that if there's even the chance that God is real, it is in your best odds to at least move in that direction. If, if that's it, and you don't even need a lot of faith, you just need a little bit of faith. And to back this up even further, let me just say this. That I would dare to say that when you look at the life of Jesus and how he taught you and I to live, if we follow in his ways, that not only will you gain everything in life to come, that if you followed the life of Jesus now today, it would produce the best life you could possibly have here and now and today. 
that following Jesus will still produce better outcomes, better relationships, a better future, more happiness, more satisfaction. I would, I would, because one of the, one of the arguments I heard was, well, what if I don't lose everything? And it, it doesn't hold up because Pascal said you lose finite things. His argument is ridiculous. But the, his point was saying, what if I don't lose everything? What if I want to go do a bunch of other stuff apart from, distant from, rejecting the ways of God? I would argue that. Go ask people who are, who are in destitute poverty or who are in addiction or who have everything in the world but yet lack relationships. You'll find people who are empty and lonely and unsatisfied in life because it is only through Jesus that you find the answers to, to meaning, morality, destiny, purpose, that you find the, the, the blueprint for how to have relationships and how to have life and how to live and how to treat other people. That Jesus literally answers and satisfies all the things that you do need here on earth that everything that you would ever want to satisfy your soul right now right now right here let alone eternity they are already found in jesus even if in heaven and hell didn't exist let me ask you this question if heaven and hell didn't exist would it still be worth it to follow jesus i think so and i think you could find a lot of clinical psychologists and counselors and divorce lawyers that tell you the same thing that following jesus just makes sense even if in heaven and hell and eternity and divinity if that didn't matter i'm telling you this that if you're a christian today here's here's the deal the question for some of us will simply be will we believe that jesus is the truth will we believe it and if there's a shred of evidence even the remotest small amount of evidence i think it's worth your while to take a step in god's direction and watch god begin to step in yours and i promise you'll find god there if you keep pursuing because jesus said this when you seek you find when you knock, the door will open. It's there. For the other group of people in here today, the question is not, will we believe? You already believe. That's why you're here, most of you. The question will be, what will you do with that truth now? Thomas was the one that asked the question, well, I don't really know the way, and I don't know how to get there, and so I don't know what to do with this information. And then Jesus responded and said, no, you do. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus makes this radical truth claim that he not is just teaching a way. He is the way. And that he is the only way. How fascinating it is. I told you a moment ago that Thomas was run through with a spear. He actually became, after he left Jerusalem, a missionary to India. Where they have over 100 million deities throughout that nation that they worship or serve or idols or some way or another that they do. And it was in the nation of India that Thomas took this radical truth claim. That Jesus didn't teach a way, didn't show a way, didn't give a rules that if you followed you could get there, any of that stuff. He said, I am the way and he's the only way. And he took that exclusive claim to the most polytheistic society in the world. And he died for that thing. Not because of what he said he believed, simply because of what he said that he saw. I think that if you're out there and you're struggling, you should be you should be grounded. You should be solid in your faith. Jesus, I I think there's a strong I think there's a strong amount of evidence. I think he was who he said he was. And I think if you're struggling with that, you need to take a step towards Jesus. I take a step towards exploring. Take a step towards asking questions and seeking so that you will one day find. And for those of you out here, your faith is strong. I want it to be stronger. I want it to be so solid that it's unshakable. And then I want you to take the same love that God had for you through Jesus. And I want you to start loving other people into the kingdom of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much, God, that, that, that you are real and that you are actively involved in our lives. 
that you're up to something. I believe that, God. I believe that years and years ago, you kind of reached down into my world and you began to shake things up and you began to change me from the inside out. And I'm only here today because you did that. And so, God, I'm here today, God, to pray that you do it for somebody else. That, God, you would kind of show yourself, that you'd reveal yourself, that you'd kind of nudge somebody in a direction towards you today. Listen, if you're in here today and you say, man, I would like to make that move towards God then what I want you to do is just slip your hand up in the air right now. Just slip your hand up in the air and say, I need to make a move towards God. I've got my doubts. I've got my concerns. I've had my hesitations. I've had all the arguments given to me as why God's not. and why I've got the, the science thing and the this thing and the math thing and the Bible's not. I've got all these doubts. But if you say, I need to make a move towards God, just slip your hand up in the air. Yeah, yeah. I'm so proud of you. Listen, there's no magical prayer. There's nothing magical you do here. It's just simple. I want you to make a move towards God in your heart and with some of your actions. Going to church, reading the Bible, asking God. Just saying, God, I don't even know what to pray. I'm not even 100% convinced you're real, but I know that if you're real, I need you in my life. And I want to make a move towards you. And it's that simple. You just begin to move towards God and watch God move back in your direction. And for everybody else in this room, hey, it is time for us to take these claims outside of our little home and our little pocket and our little four walls of this church. And it is time that we begin to invite other people into the kingdom of God, that we invite other people to church, that we show the love of Jesus and love people into his kingdom. Help us, God, to take this message wherever it is that we go. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap this morning?